Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 11. In this episode, we covered the second half of Jim Melgar's autopsy. And there were some pretty big revelations there. We got into some of the conclusions, the talk screens, and the anthropology report. We also did a pretty in-depth breakdown of time of death. Some of the most noteworthy conclusions that were drawn from the autopsy report were, number one, uh, Jim had tan fluid in his stomach which is consistent with the fact that Sandy says that he drank rum and Cokes that night, which are also tan in color. And also his blood alcohol level was at 0.06. Again, consistent with having a couple of drinks over that couple of hour period. And then the big reveals were, number one, that according to the autopsy report, there were two issues with the knives. Some of the wounds were very smooth that looked like they could have come from the knife that was in the tub. But there were also wounds that had what were described as serrated characteristics. And then on top of that... The anthropology report determined after examining the wounds to the bone and cartilage in Jim's chest that they believe the knife that stabbed him has a use defect, which we'll get into, I'm sure, a little bit later. But the most important thing that I drew from that is after an examination of the actual knife and the photos that we have that was found in the tub, it does not have any such use defect. So we're going to get into all that. We're joined today again by Liz Rose. And Mike, let's go ahead and get started. Sounds good to me, Bob. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our first question comes from Christine. She says, this is one of those all-angle questions, and I hate asking, but I feel it needs addressing. Was it ever posited that this might have been a murder for hire? Were the bank accounts and transactions checked of any and all possible suspects? So this question has come up a lot. I'm glad that we get a chance to address it today. A lot of people have asked. So, so the evidence is, in my opinion, very clearly showing that it is extremely unlikely, in my opinion, impossible, but I, I know that not everyone shares that opinion, but it's at least extremely unlikely that Sandra herself committed this this attack on her husband. 
there's so many injuries. 31 sharp force injuries, over 20 blunt force injuries. There's bruises, and they go all the way around Jim's body on the back of his head, the back of his shoulders, and his and his buttocks, and his legs, and his wrists, and his arms. It's really, in my opinion, inconceivable that whoever did this didn't come out of this fight bruised, if not cut, and, and in pretty bad shape uh, because it was clear that Jim was was fighting back. He was he had lots of defensive injuries. As we're kind of revealing that evidence and we're getting deeper into the injuries and the evidence that we have, as it seems that Sandy likely couldn't have committed this without having any injuries, then the question becomes, could she have hired someone to do this? And it, it's not a bad question, um, and we'll get into some of the specifics of that question. But you have to understand, when we're looking at this case, there never was a motive. Even even the prosecutor, even when Colleen Barnett came on the show, she said they never were able to identify a motive. She tried to suggest that maybe it was to do with the the Jehovah's Witnesses, but we've kind of disproven that. That's not really a thing. You can get divorced and be a Jehovah's Witness and still be just fine. So that that doesn't really add up. Uh, there's just no clear-cut motive. Uh, Jamie was, for lack of a better term, Sandy's caretaker in in, the, in a way. I mean, Sandy could take care of herself, but there were also some things she certainly needed help with and certainly will need help with or would need help with in the future. Uh, there's just no clear motive for why she would kill her husband. But the reason that she was put on as a suspect and then later tried and convicted was because she wasn't able to explain to the investigators. Basically, that's all it comes down to. Who did it? She had no memory of it. They didn't buy that she had no memory of it. And so from there, they started working on possible scenarios. If she was the culprit, how could it have happened? And so then we come up with the, she could have put the chair behind the door by herself. She could have tied herself up. There's all these things she could have done, except again, she doesn't, in my opinion, doesn't match up with the injuries that were on Jim that should have been reciprocated back onto her. She didn't have those. But so with no motive, and if we take away that physical evidence, there's there's no reason. Sandy's not a suspect. If we, if we look at the very the way we do our investigations and we start at the very beginning and we let the evidence drive us, there's nothing in the evidence to suggest at all that this was a professional hit that, that Sandy would have hired someone. I mean, this is clearly an inexperienced killer. They did not do a good job. I mean, there's a lot of ways to kill someone if they're, if you're hiring someone to kill them. And this is certainly not the way to do that. There's nothing, literally nothing in the evidence that suggests this was some sort of murder for hire situation. Uh, and then adding to that to answer the more specifics of the question. Yes, there was a very, very, very detailed analysis done of the financials of the Melgars. And Liz, you might be able to speak a little bit more on that, but. Um, the, the police did, in fact, look through all of your mom and dad's finances, right? Yeah, they looked through everything. They went through all their bank accounts. They had a forensic IT guy going through their all the computers, their cell phones. Yeah, they, they went through everything, and they, they didn't find anything suspicious or anything to suggest that anybody was having an affair. Right, yeah, no affairs. There was no money missing. There were no weird transactions. And like Liz said, they went through, I mean, everything from emails to Facebooks to messaging apps to everything they could possibly come up with text messages to figure out there was anything suspicious. And there was literally nothing. They couldn't come up with one thing at trial that looked suspicious in regards to Sandy as far as how this happened. So if, if it wasn't murder for hire, she did it without any money disappearing. She did it without any sort of electronic communication and then hired someone that has no 
uh, experience doing this kind of thing to begin with. All right, this next question comes from Rebecca. This may be far-fetched, but if I recall correctly, there was a lock on a door in the Melgar house that looked as if it may have been picked or tampered with. Is there any way to compare the markings on the door and jam with the knife marks on some of Jim's wounds to see if the knife defect is the same? Or perhaps the knife defect was caused by the intruder picking the lock. Just a thought. That's a good thought, but we just don't remember that back door. Uh, there is some evidence from the photos we see that something was wrong. It could just also be there was issues with the door that had nothing to do with the attack or, or an intruder coming in. But what we don't have are any photos of the jam of the door, meaning once it was open, facing the cross-section of the door where the, the striker plates are. And that's where you might see some of those tool marks and maybe a defect. As far as a defect being caused by that, that's certainly possible, too. Because the way now we do have now the the autopsy photos and and this week I've been going through the medical examiner's report and the autopsy photos and we have some photos cleaned up of some of these wounds and to kind of expand on the defect in the knife. So w what we're looking at, imagine if you had the, the blade of the knife and there was a nick that was bent. It's hard to kind of describe on audio, but if a piece was kind of like bent out of it. So remember, they kept describing perpendicular, small perpendicular uh, incised wounds that ran off of the main stab marks. So if you imagine like a burr or a little piece of the knife that's bent out um, to the side. And so when you stab in, you have your straight up and down line of the blade of the knife going in. But then there's a, a little small piece of blade that sticks straight out to the side. So that way, when you stab inward, that would leave a little mark. And that's what some of these wounds look like, especially down into the cartilage and things like that. So, And we have photos of the knife. They're up on the website. I know there's one where there was a, a paper bag under it and the flash, the shadow on the flash makes it look like there's maybe like a weird warp to the knife. Look closely, zoom in, and don't take my word for it. You go ahead and do this and zoom in on the blade itself because what it is is there's a bend in the paper under the knife, so the shadow looks like it's warped. But if you if you look on both sides of that knife and follow the blade from tip to hilt, and you'll see there's not a single imperfection in that blade, nothing. It's, it's, a, it's a clean, smooth blade from beginning to end with no defects. So that knife doesn't seem to be possible that it made some of these wounds these wounds that had this little perpendicular incised piece defect sticking out those wounds could not in my opinion have come from that knife it just it doesn't work that knife couldn't make an injury that looked like that because it does not have that defect hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chumba. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch 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 -chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Ron says, is it possible that the garage door was opened by an opener from the truck? 
He says if the initial encounter happened there, then using the phone cord makes sense to tie up Jim's feet and staging the backpack in the garage for the getaway also stands to reason. What are your thoughts here? Well, unfortunately, unless it's something we're going to find later, and we do in the next uh, week or two, we're going to go over Maurice Carpenter's trial testimony where he can answer a lot of these questions. Hopefully he did answer a lot of the questions that we've had based on his report. But from what I've seen so far, they either never looked into the vehicles that were outside or they didn't document it, um, which is pretty shocking. And I think we talked about this ago, several, maybe a couple months ago. There's because, yeah, there's a garage door opener in Jim's truck. If someone had broke into the truck, they could certainly have pushed it. I, th- I think, Liz, didn't you say you don't remember there being any issues with the truck? I'm not sure because, yeah, as you said, they didn't document anything um, regarding the car. But, you know, when I opened the truck, everything seemed to be in its place. I don't know. If, I, I couldn't tell you if it, it was locked that night or not. They usually did lock their cars, but, you know, anything could have happened. Was it locked when you got into it after you got back to town? I couldn't tell you now. I believe so. Okay. But it's been so long. Okay. So that's just, it's just another miss by the crime scene investigators. You know, that's a question that's unanswered because that, that would go so far to explain. I mean, imagine how this conversation, how this entire circumstance is different had they checked the car and say, Oh, wow. The passenger seat of the, of the truck or passenger door of the truck is, is unlocked. Well, that's boom. Now all of a sudden there's no mystery. There's no mystery at all. If, if that, if that door was unlocked or it had been broken into and someone just opens it, boom, hits the button, the door opens. It's perfectly explainable how someone got into the house, but none of it's documented. So we just don't know. And it leaves us with all these questions. Lisa says, is it normal for the ME to conduct a sexual assault kit on someone who has been murdered? I think it was mentioned in the beginning that one was conducted. Yeah. That's just going to be standard procedure. Anytime there's a homicide, anything like this. The ME in this case, in, in my opinion, did a pretty good job. I mean, there's a very thorough, detailed autopsy report. Everything was well documented. She she sought consultations where she had unanswered questions, and so that's just part of the job is you know making sure to rule anything out. You're just trying to figure out what exactly happened. So, yeah, I think it was. I mean, nothing came of it, but obviously, but it's just part of the autopsy. It's it's, it's kind of standard routine for a situation like this, any kind of homicide. Erica says, for clarification, the wounds that showed the defect in the knife blade were different than those that suggested a serrated knife, correct? Or were they the same wounds? So the autopsy report wasn't real clear on that, at least for me when I was reading it. Basically, in the, if you remember correctly, in the conclusion section, Dr. Paneri just says some of the wounds or a few of the wounds have characteristics of a serrated knife. She doesn't specifically say which wounds. And then in the anthropology report, they're only looking at wounds in the chest cavity. And when they're looking at how the wounds went through the cartilage, they're finding this defect. So I, I don't know. It, it, to me, the way she was describing some of the wounds that were on uh, Jim's neck and on his head uh, and maybe some on his arms, that maybe some of those wounds were the ones that were being described as serrated. Uh, but there were also, I know for a fact, several of the wounds on the hands were ones where she pointed out that small perpendicular incise wound coming off of them, which is consistent what was in, with what was in the chest. I don't have a real good answer for that. I do know a little more because I've been working ahead on this coming week's episode. Uh, and I know that, like, as an example, one of the wounds, which is, I don't, I think it's IW12, incise wound 12, which is like a five inch cut along the left side of Jim's abdomen. 
I know that that was one that she said she thought was had serrated characteristics. And that was not one that the anthropology report was digging into because that one only cut the skin. It didn't cut into the cartilage, which is where the anthropology folks were looking. So it seemed to me like the one on the skin, I know she says is a serrated, um, has serrated characteristics. And then there's also the ones that go into the cartilage that she says has the, the defect. Gina says, were Jim's hands or feet pruned at all from being in the tub for two hours before he was murdered? Not sure if that's something that would stay that way or not after death, but it's a thought. So I don't know the answer to this. I meant to to look this up and I tried to hit pause real quick and find it, but I couldn't find the answer to it. I don't think that the pruning would stay after death, but even still, it doesn't last a super long time once you get out of a tub. I don't know what the time limit is. Maybe it's five minutes, 10 minutes. I don't know. But keep in mind, the wounds to Jim, again, would not result in immediate death. I mean, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't say I'm not a doctor, but in my opinion, looking at this, he could have lived for several minutes to an hour with some of these wounds. And there seems to be some evidence that the, this was a kind of a two phase attack, maybe to where maybe there were some blunt force injuries that occurred. And then later the stabbings occurred or he was stabbed at one point and then stabbed again. You have the multiple, what looks like there was multiple weapons used. So you know, th- there was plenty of time after he got out of the tub until he finally passed away and in the the photos that we have uh his toes and fingers clearly aren't pruned anymore so we do know that they're not pruned at that point but i don't think that really tells us anything because i think that he was certainly alive long enough after he got out of the tub for the pruning to go away even if it doesn't go away after you die stacy says i know we aren't onto suspects yet but just curious did the other home invasion you mentioned a few weeks ago include the use of a knife to force the victims to comply uh, good question. I think that, um, Liz, you probably know better than me. I, I feel like it was a gun. Didn't they have a gun? Yeah, they had a gun. Yeah. And that's, and that's another thing with this case to where people have said several times, even Colleen Barnett said, why would they come in without a weapon or without a gun or something? But like, I, I don't even understand that. There's no way to know that. Just mm-hmm. because the ultimate attack or the ultimate murder of Jim happened with a knife doesn't mean that they didn't come in sticking a gun in their face. There's no way that we can know if they did or didn't have a gun. But in that particular home invasion, they were held at gunpoint. Tara says this might be a better question for a future episode. But if we are going to explore the possibility that the Melgars were followed home, can we find out if the murder weapon or murder weapons match any of the knives from Los Cucos? The police could have. And, you know, in 2012, absolutely, they could have went to Los Cucos and see what brand style of knives they have going there now. Six years later is kind of useless. I mean, it's it's possible, you know, and maybe something next time we're in in Dallas, we can go there and see if it, maybe there's somebody that worked there back then, or manager or something that might be able to tell us if they have a particular brand of knife they use. But it's it's much more difficult six years later. But man, you're right. It sure would have it sure would have been nice if the police had gone there back then and checked their knives. Because well, imagine if there was a set of I say it wrong every time. Calphalon, I think, is the brand name. Yeah. Calphalon knives and there's one missing there's a big chef's knife missing that would that would have been nice back then but didn't happen stephanie writes was a comparison of the tool marks on the bone or cartilage ever conducted against the knife in the tub or any possible knives not specifically um and again we're going to cover that a little more in the episode on sunday but no i I mean it was more so at trial that question was asked 
Um, there was no like cast made of the actual knife from the murder scene or anything like that, that the medical examiner or the anthropology people looked at and did a direct comparison. It would been, and it was another thing, of course, that would have been nice if that was done at the time. But remember, they didn't, that's not necessarily on the ME. It's well, actually, it's not at all on the ME. That's not their job. You know, their job is to do what they're directing, you know, to do the autopsy, present the facts, and then to kind of do what the police ask. So if the police would have brought them the knife, which was in evidence, and say, can you compare? And we've seen that in many other cases. Can you compare these wounds to this knife and tell me if this knife could have made those wounds? They could have done that, but the the detectives didn't ask them to do that, or at least it doesn't appear that they did. Ashley says, I'm a newbie, so forgive me, but wouldn't it be important for the jurors to read the autopsy and anthropology reports? Why all the lawyer gymnastics to limit information? Wouldn't the possibility of two knives be super important information? So the, the jury did have access to it, but again, you've got to deal with human nature here. So the autopsy report was, in fact, entered into evidence, which means the jury had access to it. When they go back to deliberate, they could ask the judge, can you, you know, we want to exhibit whatever. We want to see the autopsy report and read it. Sometimes at trial, they'll, they'll even take documents like that and pass it out to the jury and let them read it right there in the jury box. Um, but that information was available to them. But then it's, you know, are they going to read the whatever it was, 50 some page report? Are they going to understand the report or are they just going to listen to the medical examiner explain what's in the report? This next one's from Sanam, and I hope I said that right. Do prosecutors only base their conclusions on the evidence they receive from the cops, or could they think individually as you guys do? Why don't they individually assess the evidence? Money, time, I get it, but man, this is ridiculous. Or theoretically, do they go through and assess the evidence as you do on your podcast? They should, and in some cases they do, but for the most part, the prosecutor's not out investigating. So the that's the police job. So uh, the detectives will do the investigating. They'll come to a conclusion. They will ask for the prosecutor to sign off on a warrant to go arrest the person. And at that point, it all starts moving towards preparing for trial. Now, now most DA's offices do have their own investigators. Even smaller DA's offices do where they can then continue. But, but at that point, and I was just speaking to a prosecutor, a former prosecutor a couple of days ago about another case and we're looking at this particular case and preparing to, to to maybe file a motion for actual innocence. And this prosecutor is is willing to help out. And he asked me to kind of give him my investigative information, uh, the work that we've done. And, and as he put it, and it was it was kind of eye opening. He said, you have to understand when a case comes to my desk from the police, my job is to prepare for trial, which means everything I'm investigating is looking for evidence that the police got it right in order for me to get a conviction. So there may be other evidence out there, but I'm not out there looking for evidence for someone who someone else who may have done it because it's going to screw up my case. So I don't even even look for that type of stuff. And so some what he was wanting to do was, well, let me let me look at the evidence again with this theory in mind and see if that fits. Which again it comes down as as investigators for us that's frustrating because we want to see an evidence-based investigation where the evidence drives the theory where for prosecutors oftentimes and it's in and, and I can say that's the way it should it shouldn't be that way but the reality is it really is that way and we're going to talk about a little bit more about that on Sunday as well but prosecutors and defense attorneys too do their job with a theory-based investigation meaning the prosecutor already has to work on the theory that the person is guilty so they're looking for evidence to fit that theory 
Defense attorneys are doing the same thing. They're only looking for evidence that is going to disprove that theory or prove their theory of innocence. So, yes, they can think individually. And they and in this case, Liz, how many different prosecutors passed on trying your mom that wanted to drop the charges? At least three, probably four. Yeah, so there's an example of prosecutors thinking individually. There was at least three, maybe four prosecutors before Colleen Barnett who reviewed the case, looked at it, and decided this was not a case worth pursuing. And I know the last one was going to actually just drop the charges and be done with it. Um, but then there was an election and, and new people came into office and Colleen Barnett ended up in that position. And she decided she wanted to try it. So there is that ability to think individually. It just comes down to, and I'll say no, they're probably not investigating the way we do on the podcast because we do, you know, we're not limited by time. So as you've seen, we take every little piece of evidence and dig into it in depth one week at a time. Uh, prosecutor has a whole bunch of cases all at once and they're just, they're just, nobody's going to be that thorough, uh, going through a case like this or any other case. So yeah, they can think individually, but typically they're only going to be investigating, uh, looking for evidence that will support their theory, unfortunately. All right, this next one, Liz, is going to be a question for you. Morgan writes, I'm wondering what Liz Rose and your extended family think about the Truth and Justice Army and its work so far. Have you learned something new already? If so, what did you find significant so far? And do you feel optimistic? We've all been very, very happy with the way things have been going. Bob has shed light on a bunch of different issues regarding, you know, what happened. We've got a few more answers. You know, I don't really want to get too into detail just because I don't know what uh, what could be used in the appeal and what what won't be. But yeah, we're very happy with the way things have gone, the way everything has been covered. We've really gotten into detail with things. We've had a lot of questions that Bob has been able to answer just by, you know, going over the evidence with a fine tooth comb. And yeah, we just couldn't be happier with the way things are going. I was really nervous going into this because I wasn't sure what to expect. And uh, I'm just really glad that Bob took the case and that things have gone the way they are. And there's a lot of stuff. And I appreciate all that, Liz. And also, to, you know, there's when you were mentioning some of the stuff that may be using the appeal or not. And just so you guys know, there's there is more investigation being done behind the scenes or always is. Uh, and there are things where it's like, OK, maybe this is something that we don't want to talk about yet, um, whether we don't want to tip our hand to whether it's maybe an alternate suspect or to the prosecution side or for a whole number of reasons. Uh, some of the things we find we we don't share on the podcast. Eventually, they all come out, but um, we're doing a lot of work. And, I, and, and I'll say from my perspective, I'm really enjoying the process having Liz helping out. It's been Really helpful to have someone engaged. You know, Liz has obviously a vested interest being the daughter of both uh, the victim and Sandy. And Liz is very bright and she is very willing to help. And she's helped out a lot, not just with, you know, coming on the podcast and things like that when we want to have questions answered, but even some technical stuff. You know, when we get into a bind, you know, I, th <laughs> I throw little projects at Liz all the time like, hey, when you get a minute, can you give me a timestamp for this for our previously on segment stuff like that? Or, can you help us pull photos out of the trial transcript so we can organize them better? So it's been a really awesome team effort. Oh, thanks, Bob. Kate says, how does alcohol break down after death? Well, that's a really good question, and the answer is it doesn't. Uh, and I assume she's wondering, you know, if, if the alcohol percentage might have been higher, and then over time it degraded and it was, and it was lower. 
it doesn't break down after death. The, the, the way your alcohol, quote, breaks down in your system is your body metabolizes it, you know, and it cycles through the liver and things like that. And in Jim's case, well, in any case, once somebody is deceased, that process stops. So, I mean, you can go weeks later and pull blood out of the, out of, out of just their blood or out of their organs, or I think even blood, bone marrow and, and still tell what their blood alcohol level was at the time that they died. Danielle has a question about Sandy's black eye, or what appears to be a black eye. The crime scene photo is taken the night of. Sandy doesn't appear to have a black eye, but in the photo that Liz took a few days later, there appears to be a yellowing bruise under her eye. Bob or Liz, can either of you explain this? I mean, I'll take a little stab at it, but Liz probably knows better because she took the photo. I think a lot of it, what I see, it's just, just lighting differences, different cameras. Her eyes do look to me like they, they could have maybe had a black eye or, you know, with some bruising in the photos taken the night of the crime scene or the night that Jim and Sandy were found. And then a few days later, there's the photo by Liz where the, the whole picture is kind of the, the, the coloring in the picture is a little, there's a different hue to it. But Liz, you took the picture. What did you find when you first got home? What did you see on your mom's face? Well, I mean, she has some bruising around her eye. I mean, it wasn't a black eye the way that you would expect, you know, you know, it's swelling and purple, but there was definitely a bruise there. You know, I think the photos that the crime scene investigator took was pretty washed out. So I think that, you know, like you said, the lighting differences and the cameras, because I had just gotten the camera that I used to take the picture and everything is washed in yellow. Because of the settings I was using, I wasn't familiar with the settings yet, and I I didn't take very good picture. Also, I've noticed that the picture floating around is one from Dateline, and I know they used a bunch of filters, which changed the coloring in the photos as well. Right, so that's not the original. That's the one that Date I saw that too. It's the one that Dateline used, which they used their filters for the show. Right. But, you know, I took that photo two days later, right before uh, she went to the doctor. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, like I said before, it wasn't, you know, a big, full and purple black eye, but there was bruising. Do you think maybe it was the type of, because what it looked to me like, because there was no bruising or swell, or there was no swelling anyway, that it could be more bruising from just, you know, like something like, oh, she was like laying on the floor with pressure against the eye. Um, I know lupus affects, doesn't, doesn't lupus have an effect on like bruising and irritation to the skin and things like that? Yeah. Um, and also a lot of the medications that you might take for, um, lupus can cause a lot of bruising. You know, I always thought that because she was, you know, she had the hematoma on her head, this is just like a secondary injury from it. And it might not have been as bad as the hematoma. Yeah. That's what they call it. The the coop counter coop. Things I remember from EMT class where you can get, you get it. Basically, it means, you know, you get an injury. So say you get a blow to the back right of your head and then there'll be like a reciprocal injury on the front left of your head, like on your face. And it has to do with your brain shifting when you're hit. So it moves, you know, the, the inertia from it strikes the other side of your face. And there, those are are pretty common injuries. So, but but to you, did it look like? Did you see it and think, "Wow, she got punched in the face"? I mean, I all I knew is that she got hit. I didn't think that it was like a punch to the face. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Bernadette says, I'm wondering how the prosecutors explain the severe beating Jim received and the lack of any bruising or cuts on Sandra's hands, other than those caused by the bindings. It would take a great deal of force to break the orbital bones. It just does not seem possible that she even had the strength to cause those injuries. What do you think? Well, to be honest, uh, to be to be fair, it doesn't take a lot of strength to break an orbital bone. It, it's actually one of the more fragile bones in the body. So that's something that should be put out there. I mean, it, now it takes some force. You're not going to just, you know, get tapped on the on the around the eye and break the orbital bone. But it doesn't take a whole lot of force to break it. But but more importantly to me are the are the skull fractures. You know, now we've got the the four wounds to the top and back of Jim's head that are nasty. There are sharp force injuries with the forked ends with abrasions around them. So it's like a blunt object with a sharp edge and they're going all different directions. Uh, but that's not where the skull fractures were. The skull fractures were around the side of his head back behind his like right ear. And, and, and in the autopsy photos, when the head's shaved, it's a massive bruise. That's where that cluster of bruising was. And it still, to me, looks like it could be a fist. And that, I mean, to, to fracture the skull with a hit like that, that takes a lot of force, a lot more than, than like the orbital bone. So then getting back to the question as far as how did the prosecutor explain it away, we're going to get into that on Sunday, that Sunday's episode is all about how this went down at trial, how that battle, so to speak, between prosecution and defense went when Paneri was on the stand. So we'll get into all that on Sunday. Jill says, I saw that a few weeks back, a jury member was commenting on the fan page defending the guilty charge. Were you able to talk him into joining the show for an interview? I would love to know what he thinks now after hearing the autopsy info, etc. Keep up the great work. I have had a conversation with him. It was a pleasant conversation. He, at that point, has not agreed to do an interview. I don't know if we'll get there or not, if, if eventually he will, but... Um, I'm optimistic that at some point we'll we'll get there and he'll, he'll do an interview. I know he's pretty busy, but we have we have made contact. Okay, this next one comes from Frequent Texter Kid Thunder on Twitter. Were there any similar injuries between Jim and Sandra? Could the suspects have divided and conquered? One suspect knocks out Sandra from behind and then help the second neutralize Jim. What do you think, Bob? So I, I guess the the idea here is because it looks like maybe multiple attackers on Jim that if there are kind of similar injuries on Sandy and Jim, that someone that was with Sandy while someone else was with Jim then came to help them, they would have maybe similar injuries, I think is where they're going with that. If I'm wrong, I apologize. Um, But there are some similarities, at least in MO. Sandy does have a hematoma, and we're going to get into her medical report in this week's episode also, but she was, it appears, was hit on the back of the head. Jim was hit on the back of the head. Sandy's ankles were bound. Jim's ankles were bound. Uh, Sandy's arms were bound. And there's a rope that looks like it was trying to bind Jim. Now, we haven't got a good look at the knots that were used to tie Sandy yet. And the knot on the phone cord was just, it, was, it wasn't the same as the knot on the lasso. 
different type of knot. So, you know, that would be something maybe the same, we could say the same people tied these knots and those knots. It's hard to say. Um, certainly if, if I'm right, if the knot on Sandy was like a handcuff type knot, the knots on Jim were not that. But then again, that hand, the, the lasso could be a handcuff knot. And I, I just thought about this as we're talking. I'm trying to think if you pull the tag end out of, you know what I'm talking about, Mike, the double figure eight handcuff knot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you pull one of those ends out, it would leave a lasso. Yes. Now that I'm thinking about it. So maybe that, you know, of course, you know, we joked in the episode that it was, you know, that it was, you know, a cowboy was trying to tie Jim up or something because of the lasso. It's a weird thing, but it could have been the same type of knot as with Sandy. If if someone had tied that type of handcuff knot and just in, during the struggle, half of it came undone, then, then it would leave a lasso, essentially. Yeah, that's a good observation. Yeah, and I, I don't know if that completely answers the question, but as far as similar injuries, just the the head wounds, I think it would be the only things that are, you know, that you could compare apples to apples one to the other. All right, Kelly says the phone cord bothers me. Liz is pretty sure the phone cord came from the garage, so why would the unsubs bring this item from the garage and use such an unreliable cord option for binding? Also, Sandy was tied up with bindings that seemed to be in close proximity to her. Could this mean Jim was tied up or a plan was created to tie him up in closer proximity to the garage rather than the bedroom? Well, there's there's more to this story uh, that we're going to get into later. Um, but I'll just say now that we don't know that the items Sandy was tied up with came from the bedroom. And there's and there's, in fact, maybe some evidence that that they didn't. As far as the phone cord goes, uh, this is where me as as an investigator I can't even though Liz, because Liz, you said you're you're pretty sure that phone cord came from the garage. Well, um, there was a box in the garage that had um, a bunch of random stuff in it. It had been there for years, and there was a, a phone cord in there that was long enough to be the phone cord that was used to tie up my dad's ankle, but that's as sure as I can get. And for me hearing that, I kind of have to put that in, in a category for myself of it's possible it came from there. But I mean, it's a phone cord in a box. So it, you know, that cord may not have been there anymore. It may have been a different size. The reason that I lean towards the phone cord didn't come from the house, and it's just speculation on my part, but is the red rope. That red rope was a, is a very specific size. It didn't come from, it's not, there's not a big spool of red rope. It's just this maybe eight foot long section of what looks like new red braided rope maybe maybe three-eighths of an inch or a half half inch diameter rope like where the hell did that come from if they didn't bring it with them and if they brought the rope then maybe they brought the cord the phone cord too and especially when we we factor that in with sandy's bindings it's just hard to say i don't i don't think that we can say that cord came from the garage i think we can say that it's a good possibility that it did but i think there's also some evidence to suggest otherwise uh the other issue is that you know, there there was a set of shelves in the closet that weren't photographed, and I can't be sure that there wasn't something on those shelves either. In your dad's closet, right? Okay, so what you're thinking that maybe there was something else on that shelf? You know, I really don't know if you know anything had been moved there. I couldn't I couldn't remember what was on the shelves other than some books because. You know, those were never photographed for some reason, so I, we don't know what was on there or if anything had been moved from there. That's interesting. I hadn't. So would that be I'm trying to think of the closet? If you go in the door, 
to the right, there was a file cabinet. I think there was like a uh, where right. ties were hung up. Would mm-hmm. it be to the left and on the adjacent bedroom wall? Is that where the shelves were? Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. We don't have any photos of that wall. I assumed it was just an empty wall because there's no photos. But so there was a shelf there. Yeah, there were. A, there was a like a bookcase there. Okay. All right. Well, that's good to know. Maybe we'll get a little more info on that. I doubt it, but because I think they gave us all the crime scene photos they had. Ellen says, I have one question pertaining to season one featuring Adnan Sayed. Will you be covering the oral arguments that will be streaming live on November 29th from the Maryland Court of Appeals? Uh, I won't be covering them like live covering them. There's just no way that we've just got too much other work going on with this case and some other cases in the background right now. Uh, But we will be talking about them for sure. Um, I I would recommend follow Colin Miller. Uh, Of course, Colin is one of the host of the Undisclosed podcast, but he's also got his blog, the Evidence Prof blog, and he does a really, really good job, very thorough, and he updates it often. And so I assume Colin through there, and usually he'll post about it like on his Twitter feed, uh, which is, I think he's at Evidence Prof or at the Evidence Prof or something like that. Um, if you want to stay up to date on what's happening with that, either go to the live stream and, and listen to it or watch it. I don't know how it's going to be streamed or where, or follow Colin Miller and you'll get on the spot updates and then once it's done uh then i'll do a recap or maybe i'll see if i can get colin or rabia or susan to come on the show and and talk a little bit about it and explain to everybody what happened okay and our last question is from ian is there any chance of a west memphis 3 update as i've said we were working on these cases behind the scenes all i can tell you is the case is still being worked on we are still going to come back to it i don't know when i will tell you that we are not going to come back to it on the podcast until after we conclude season six, Sandy season here. So, um, so we've got some time before we get there, which is, is fine because there's, we're able to get a lot of work done behind the scenes and we're doing some recordings and stuff as we move along for the podcast, but we're still working on it and, uh, we will be coming back to it. That's the best I can give you. Okay. That's going to do it for this week's Friday follow up. Liz, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yep, thanks for joining us, Liz, and thank you to all of you listeners for joining us on the show and for engaging and sending in all of your questions. And make sure you tune in on Sunday for episode 12, where we're going to break down the trial testimony of Dr. Panera. See you guys next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. And like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been truth and justice. Hello? Go ahead and say it. A hippopotamus. <laughs> oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.